Uh, as we continue our study of uh, church history, the session, this session is actually a little bit of an odd one out. Um, tonight we're, gonna be, we're not going to be spending masses of our time actually studying history. Uh, we're not going to look at many primary sources or things like that. This is more of a question which emerges as we start thinking about church history. And as Danny said, it's the question of canon. That is, uh, the 66 books of the Bible. That's what I mean by the canon. Last week, we saw the dangers of quoting the Bible out of context. Do you remember the Council of Nicaea? We'd had Arius's interpretations of Scripture being refuted by Athanasius and Alexander. But we might start to ask, as we look at things like that, why did both sides in that argument quote from Scripture? Specifically, how did they decide what was Scripture and what wasn't? Why did Arius quote from Colossians and Proverbs? Why not the Gospel of Thomas or the Shepherd of Hermas, or any of the other Christian texts that were sort of knocking around. Who decided that those books were God's Word and not other books? Uh, well, if you're a Christian and that's the first time that that thought has ever occurred to you, I'm sorry if that feels a little bit unsettling. I know uh, it never occurred to me to ask it for years once I became a Christian. I just took it for granted that this was God's Word and never really questioned it. And we're going to see that there's actually a very good reason why that didn't occur to me. I wasn't just, just slow on the uptake. There's actually a really good, solid, theological reason why taking that for granted is perfectly right and reasonable response. But we do have to acknowledge that the question of canon is a really crucial question. It's not just a historical question of how did we get these 66 books. It's a theological question. What has God said? And of course, that's much, much more than an academic theological question. We as Christians are staking our lives on the revelation of God in Scripture. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3 in your Bibles. And someone's got a page number shouted out. <clears throat> what was that? 1196. Thanks, Keith. <clears throat> These are words that will probably be quite familiar to you. <clears throat> starting on page 1197 actually in verse 14 Paul speaking to Timothy young church leader but as for you continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures, Paul says there, are God-breathed, they're the words of God himself, and because of that, they and they alone can make us wise for salvation, and for every good work, a life which pleases our Creator. Without knowing what God has said, we are sort of cast adrift on a sea of uncertainty. We can never know what it is that saves us, and we can never know how to live to please God. Now, we might be thinking at that point, well, I can see that I need to know what God has said, but do I really need to know the limits of what God has said? Is it so important that we say that these 66 books are the books of the Bible and not others? Well, the Scriptures themselves warn us that, yes, that is exactly what we need to do. Here's a verse that you should print out and put over your computer screen as you do your revision this term. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. 
Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Just cling to that. If you're not tired, do some more study. No, no, no. I mean, don't do too much study. Um, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes here says that there's a difference, a massive difference between the words of God and the words of men. Notice here in verse 11, the collected sayings of many wise men are described as being given by one shepherd. Now, we're not going to go massively into that tonight, but it's worth noting that the collected words of men can be the unified words of one God somehow. But notice that those words in verse 11 are like goads or nails. They are, their meaning is fixed and reliable, and they're helpful to us. Goads, you know, prod us a bit. They, they get us going in the right direction. By contrast, the words of men, the many books in verse 12, are varied and unreliable. And rather than goading us on and helping us, they just wear us out. They just confuse us. It is very important that we are able to say that this is God's word, authoritative, reliable, fixed, helpful, and this is not. This only carries the authority of man. It isn't particularly reliable, and if you try to live by it, it will only wear you down. Remember that Mark, uh, sorry, Jesus in Mark 7 is able to say to the Pharisees on your sheet, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Now, those traditions of men were the work of sincere, religious, pious men who thought they were obeying God's word. But in holding on to those traditions, in considering them reliable, they're actually worshipping God in vain. They weren't worshipping him at all. They were simply angering him because they'd let go of the really reliable teaching, the words of God. And so you can see how deadly it is to mingle the words of God with the words of men. One final thing to think about regarding this is that if we do mingle the words of God with the words of men, it's not only difficult to know what the words of God are, which ones are the words of God, which ones are reliable, which ones should I cling on to and which ones should I let go of. It's also difficult to know what the words of God mean. The Bible is the work of one shepherd who's giving us one message over the whole of the Bible. That's what you guys who are looking at the Bible overview are studying, isn't it? It's a unified message, but it is a message that only becomes really clear once you have the whole Bible. Once you've looked at the whole thing, once you start getting into Matthew, everything gets really exciting and clear. So take an example of Genesis 3, verse 15. I'll read verse 14 as well. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, curse to you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if you were to take those verses on their own, you might think that this is just a verse about how mankind and snakes aren't ever going to get along. You know, this is just saying snakes, ooh, uh, but as you read on in the scriptures, as you see the Old Testament's obsession with genealogies and tracing Eve's offspring and how Eve's offspring is compared with the offspring of those who don't love God, as we see more predictions of Satan's overthrow, as we hear about the suffering servant who is somehow crushed um, but also defeats sin, and then finally we read in Revelation 20, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It all makes clear, doesn't it? It all sort of cloesces and makes sense. It's as we look at the whole canon, the whole Bible, that the unified meaning of Scripture becomes clear. Now think about what would happen if we started to add some of the books. 
What if, to take a silly example, we included the Harry Potter series in the Bible? They're pretty good. Sting them in at the end. Well, now we would have to take, if we're saying those are the words of the one shepherd, we have to take those books into account too, as we read Genesis 3.15. And think about basilisks and nagini and parseltongue, and things get a lot less clear. The point is, if you add more books, the meaning of the whole thing changes. You see? And if there's always the chance that another book could be added to the canon later, then any conclusions we draw from the Bible are basically provisional. They're on hold. We can't really commit to them. Because who knows how the inclusion of other books might alter what we thought that passage meant. So all of that, I hope, convinces you that it's an important question. But they're all worth noting because it's, uh, sorry, it's worth noting it's also crucial because it's debated. There are folk today, Christian people, who would say that, for example, it doesn't really matter whether or not we have a fixed list, a canon of Scripture. Those people would say something like, the fixed canon of Scripture was an an attempt by the institutional early church to clamp down on the beautiful diversity and difference of opinions among Christians in the early days. The thought goes that in the beginning, many different expressions of belief flourished and were welcomed, and many more books were considered to be God's word, until some crossmen with beards thought, I've enough of that, and banned all the books they disagreed with. And so the true church now should reject the idea of canon and be prepared to hear God's voice through Scripture and through other books and through other encounters and embrace the diversity of opinion, of opinion that would come through that. That's a very attractive idea to our postmodern society. It's a very worrying idea for some Christians. But it's really not good enough. Historically, as we're going to see, that reconstruction of the early church is just nonsense. But more importantly, it's theologically wider than Mark II. That's what we're going to be looking at as we see how the canon emerged and why we can be confident that we know what God has said. Let's think first, though, about some false steps, some wrong ideas that have cropped up from time to time which both have an element of truth to them, but on their own they're not going to help us as we try and figure out how we can be sure that we have God's Word bound in red leather on our laps. Uh, First false step is that the church decided the canon. This is a pretty common one, I think. I couldn't, I couldn't two weeks in a row bring myself to quote Dan Brown again. Uh, but you may know that he claims in the Da Vinci Code that the canon was decided at the Council of Nicaea. Well, at the Council of Nicaea, they didn't even discuss the canons. There you go. Dan Brown is a terrible historian as well as a terrible author. But there are more reputable sources which would point to something like the Synod of Carthage, I'm sure you know it well, in 397, or a letter written by our friend Athanasius in 367, both of which list the 27 books of the New Testament. And they all say, there we go, the canon is drawn up and decided by the church. Before the fourth century or so, everything's in flux, no one's quite sure, until the church puts its seal of approval on some books and says no to some other ones. Now, normally that reconstruction is thrown at Christians as an objection. It's a way of saying what we said before, that the cross men with beards have stamped out the beautiful diversity of true Christianity. But it's also the official approach taken by the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is completely unembarrassed about this. They will say, yeah, yeah, the church decides the canon. Or at the very least, without the official pronouncement of the church, you can't know for sure what the canon is. So a guy called Stanislaus Hosius who was a representative of the Pope at the Roman Catholic Council of Trent in the 16th century, said this, the scriptures only have as much force as the fables of Aesop if destitute of the authority of the church. 
You see what it's saying? Because the Scriptures are the church's documents, the church alone has the authority to decide which is Scripture and which are not. Without that declaration, you simply cannot treat certain books as authoritative and others as not. Now, I've already said that this approach, it runs into a historical difficulty pretty early on. For example, there are canonical lists floating around in the church a long time before the 4th century. There's documentary evidence of widespread agreement on most of the books of the canon by 180 AD at the very latest, and uh, we'll come back to that. But another historical difficulty is that, is that the Synod of Carthage and other things like it never claimed to be the church deciding the canon. The Synod of Carthage was only ever a local council. It was a bunch of local church leaders meeting to make some decisions on what they were going to do. It would never claim to be the voice of the church. And also at that council and others like it, there were no other serious candidates for inclusion in any list of scripture. They weren't throwing out the Gospel of Thomas. It wasn't even mentioned. The only decision they actually made on canon at Carthage was this one. It was also determined that besides the canonical scriptures, nothing be read in the church under the title of divine scriptures. The canonical scriptures are these, and it lists the lot. All they decided was, in our churches, we're only going to read the canon, nothing else. Notice that actually they're just assuming the idea of the canon and just clarifying what they mean. The decision is not that some books are in and some books are out. It's that in our churches, we're only going to read the books that are in. You see? In fact, the first council that issues an authoritative list of the books of the Bible and says, we have decided that this is the canon, is the Council of Trent in 1546, which I would argue is a little bit late in the day to be deciding that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is essentially saying that for 1,500 years, no Christian could be sure they had the Bible, which is obviously a bit of a problem. But there is actually a wider issue than that, more than a historical issue. Can anyone tell me a problem with saying that the reason we know what books are authoritative is that the church says so? What's the problem? Hannah Harmon. Because God says so, yeah, okay. Okay, so the church is establishing itself as an authority sort of above the word. Yeah, very good. Any other problems with it? Church is made up of sinners, well, that's true. Yeah, they might have got it wrong. True enough. Um, another question is, how do we know who authorizes the church? If we believe the Bible on the base of the church, why do we believe the church? Who authorizes them? Do you see? Uh, it just moves the problem along. It doesn't actually solve anything. It just moves the problem along a stage. Um, before, we're, before, we were asking, how do we know that this book of the Bible has authority? And the Roman Catholic Church says, because we tell you so. And now the question is, well, how do we know the church has that authority? And as Hannah says, this approach actually makes the church more authoritative than the Bible. Um, it, it's a higher authority that allows us to accept the lower authority of the Bible, which isn't good enough. Well, some Christians, in response to that, have taken a different approach, and that's that the canon is decided by whether the books meet certain criteria. Now, again, as with the first one, we're going to see that there's some real good truth in this, but it's not the whole story. It's not a very helpful idea on its own. So how does this work? Well, some people have pointed to doctrinal criteria, theological criteria. They have said that we can determine which books are authoritative based on what they teach. Now, again, there's some truth in that. One of the issues, though, is that people have disagreed on what criteria to use. So take, for example, this guy, Marcion. Uh, he's gone. There he is. 
Martin's the guy on the right with his face scratched out. That sort of sees how, I mean, tells you how people thought of him. Um, he's around pretty early on. He was born in 85 AD. And here's Marcion's canon, okay? So some of the Gospel of Luke, Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians, Romans 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. That's not his New Testament. That's his whole Bible, okay? That's what he said the Bible is. Why? Well, because Marcion was a Gnostic, he believed that the physical world was evil and wrong and created by the evil God of the Old Testament. Uh, Marcion wasn't particularly keen on the physical world at all. He said that the thought of sex made him feel physically sick, so, you know, problems. Um, but he said that the real Bible, the true canon, were those books that were more about heaven and spirituality and didn't quote the Old Testament positively at all. I think he did quite well to get to those books, to be honest. I'm not sure he read them. Uh, anyway, that's Marcion. Obviously not keen on him, scratch his face out. Uh, but here's someone we are rather keen on, Martin Luther. Luther also had a criteria for whether a book should be in the canon. It's a better one than Marcion. He said that a book should be in the canon if it preached Christ. Whatever preaches Christ, he said. He said, look, Christ is the center and goal of all of Scripture. If something doesn't preach Christ, how can it be in Scripture? That meant, though, that Luther really struggled with some of the books of the New Testament. He was particularly unkind to the letter of James. At one point, he said, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove, which I, you know, quite like. He said a lot of, his, a lot of what we know about Luther's um, uh, sayings, by the way, are from his table talk. And his table talk is basically the words his friends wrote down when he was talking in the pub. Seriously. So, you know, you've got you know, to imagine he's had a couple before he starts talking. Anyway. He never did throw Jimmy into the stove. He always printed the letter of James in all of his German Bibles, and eventually he did see how it might be interpreted to preach Christ, but he really wrestled with it. He wasn't convinced at all for a while that it should be in his Bible. And other folk who've come up uh, with doctrinal criteria have been less restrained than Luther. In the 1980s and 90s, a group of 150 New Testament scholars formed the Jesus Seminar, where they voted using little colored beads as to what material in the Gospels actually came from Jesus. Um, their criteria was, one, whether the saying was short, two, whether it was about trusting God, and three, whether Jesus was being ironic. <laughs> True story. If it met those criteria, in it went. There wasn't masses of material. Again, I hope you see the problem. Again, it's the problem of, okay, who's deciding? Who's the authority here? Who's in control? It makes our conceptions of what theology ought to be more authoritative than the Bible. We should get our theology from Scripture. We don't get Scripture from theology. Other folk have come up with other criteria for determining the canon, not doctrinal, but historical. So among these is another friend of ours, B.B. Warfield. Look at his crinkly eyes. He's lovely. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. There's a name. Anyway, Warfield was great. He's a real defender of the faith, but he grew up in a time when people were very confident about the progress of science and about objectivity and neutrality. And so he said this, it is a most assured result of biblical criticism that every one of the 27 books which now constitute our New Testament is assuredly genuine and authentic. What he means by biblical criticism there is the process by which the origins of a book are determined. Things like looking at all, sifting through all the different manuscripts and determining authorship. Warfield said, we can prove by neutral, objective, historical investigation that the books of the New Testament were written by the apostles, and so we can accept them on the basis of that historical investigation. Now, Warfield has got something very right at that point, which we're going to see, but he's also made a mistake. 
It's the same mistake we've seen with all these different approaches. All of them appeal to another authority to tell us we can accept certain books of Scripture. So how do you know that Ephesians should be in the Bible? The Catholic Church says because the Church says so. Marcion says because my theology says so. Warfield says because the science says so. And what does that do? All of those things relegate the Bible to being a lesser authority and makes those other things the higher authority. The question of can we tr trust we have the canon becomes the question, can we trust the church? Or can we trust Martin Luther? Or can we trust historical investigation? And none of that will do because of what the canon is. The word canon literally means measuring stick. It's a, it's a ruler. It's a thing you use to determine whether something else is right. It's the authority. By definition, the canon is the authority. It's the Bible that determines what the church should believe. It's the Bible that tells Luther what to think. It's the Bible which teaches us whether or not we can do historical investigation. And so you can't use those things to determine the boundaries of the Bible. It's the tail wagging the dog. And so, positively speaking, how do we know that what we have really is God's voice? Well, if we actually go and read the Bible, we'll find the answer within its pages. Because our God is the God who swears by himself. Hebrews 6 over the sheet. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. That's a crucial point to grasp. When people swore oaths in the ancient world, they were binding themselves to a higher authority, something greater than them. They were saying, I call upon this higher authority as witness that I'm telling the truth. And if I do not tell the truth, that higher authority can judge me. May God strike me down if I lie. Well, in Genesis, God swears an oath to Abraham. So who does God swear by? Who keeps God accountable? Who is God's higher authority? Answer, no one. There's no one greater than God. If he swears by anyone else... He is automatically reducing his own authority. He's ungodding himself. He can't happen. So what does that mean in the question of canon? It means ultimately that our final authority for determining what is scripture must be scripture itself. We can certainly make use of historical arguments and criteria and so on. We'll explore that in a second. But only in the ways the Bible tells us we can. It is ultimately God's word which attests itself to be God's word. Here's how John Calvin put it, quoting another guy called Hilary of Poitiers. God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word. Scripture is indeed self-authenticated. Now you might think, well, that's very convenient. Uh, I believe the Bible because the Bible tells me to. It just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It sounds like a circular argument. But we need to see two things. By the way, I've given you like no space to write these down, have I? Oh well. Right, small. Uh, um, one, when it comes to the question of authority, everyone has a circular argument. We're talking about our foundations for knowledge, the benchmarks by which we determine whether something is true or not. We're talking about our measuring sticks and our deepest commitments. We have no higher authority by which to prove them because we simply assume they're true. Why does the hardline scientific atheist trust science as their highest authority? Because they do. Because it's scientific. There's no higher authority for them. There's nothing else they can appeal to to prove why science is scientific. It just is. Why do we trust God's witness of himself? Because where else, have we have to be, where else do we have to go? There's no higher authority. 
And that's the second thing we have to see. This approach is grounded in the character and glory of God himself. No one else is a fit witness to God. No one can represent him accurately. Only he can. There's no higher authority. And if we appeal to another authority, we reduce the authority of God. We reduce his glory and his greatness. That's the only approach we have left to us. So as we look at the Bible, what do we find out about the canon? How does God attest to himself in his word? And what does his word lead us to expect about how the canon will be formed in history? The first thing the word leads us to expect is that God's people have absolutely no difficulty recognizing God's purpose. Here's what Jesus said. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. God in his word leads us to expect that his people will know when they are being addressed by their God. This is the thing we need to remember, that the Bible is a unique book, a unique collection of books. It's a living book. Because God's Holy Spirit continues to speak the words afresh to us, and we are in relationship with that Spirit. He knows us and loves us. There are all sorts of debates at the moment as to whether Shakespeare really did write all the plays which are attributed to him. Well, wouldn't it be? It would end the debates, wouldn't it, if Shakespeare were alive today to tell us, and if we knew Shakespeare was a reliable, truth telling guy? Well, that's actually true when we read the Bible. God is alive today to tell his people they're reading his words, and we know we can trust him. That's why the thought we talked about at the beginning, that most Christians simply never think to question why these books make up the canon, that rests on really solid theology. It never occurs to me to question whether a a note I get, which purports to be from my wife, is actually from my wife or not. I can tell straight away whether it is. I recognize her handwriting. I know how she expresses herself. We're in relationship. And that expectation that God gives us in Scripture is exactly what we see happening in history. This is where the thought that the church decides the canon has a little bit of truth to it. It's not that the church decides the canon, but the canon is recognized by the church. The 4th century synods which made a list of the books of the New Testament, they weren't the church imposing something on the rest of the churches. There's really no such thing as the church. What it was was a group of local churches recognizing what had already happened in their churches. That certain books were simply being identified and acknowledged and used as scripture by Christ's people. It happened very early on. There was never masses of debate. There was, though, a little bit of debate. And that leads to another thing the Bible says about itself, which is that God is sovereign over his word. The quote there is from Jeremiah 1. God is watching to see that his word is fulfilled. In other words, he gives his words purpose and ensures that they achieve that purpose. That's just a particular application of a a wider truth, which is that God is sovereign over everything, including history. Here's Paul in Acts 17. From one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. As Colin Buchanan put it, God is watching over history. To him there is no mystery. He always did exist, you see, not like your baby's history. Uh, Truth be told, there was some debate about canon in the early days. Hardly any books which are not now in our Bibles were ever treated as scripture. 
Forget the Gospel of Thomas. This is no evidence that anyone ever thought that was in the Bible. But some books took a fair bit of time to get recognized and used in churches. 2 Peter and Revelation in particular had a bit of a rough ride early on. What do you do with that fact? It could worry you. You could think, oh no, I didn't realize it was all so uncertain. But it shouldn't worry you. In the same way that the popularity of people like Arius shouldn't worry you. God is working in and through historical processes. He's sovereign over all of it. The Bible didn't drop down from heaven on gold tablets like the Book of Mormon, but that's because our God is better than the God of the Book of Mormon. He's good enough and strong enough not to need to do anything like that. He can work through debates and disputes and arguments to achieve the results that he wants. Again, our confidence in the canon is based on our trust in God's character. Do we really believe that God would go to all that effort to work out the whole of human history such that Christ died on the cross for our sins just to fall at the last hurdle of making sure his people knew about it? Danny mentioned last week that the books we know as 1 and 2 Corinthians are actually probably 2 and 4 Corinthians. There are two other letters that we know Paul wrote that we haven't got. And he jokes about what would happen if we found those letters today. I, I think it's fairly clear we wouldn't include them in the Bible, even if we did find them. Why not? Because if God wanted them in, he would have got them in. If God wanted them to be preserved, he would have preserved them. As Corinthians remind us, we have all we need. Finally, the third thing the Bible leads us to expect about the canon is to do with its origins. Ephesians 2 verse 20 talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The Bible comes to us through writers who are messengers and mouthpieces of God. Jesus, remember, took it as read that the Old Testament was God's word, spoken through his prophets, and he commissioned the apostles to write and to oversee the writing of the New Testament. Here's how John put it. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood, and we could go to dozens of other verses. This is where the idea of a criteria comes from. This is what Warfield got right. It is important that what we have in the New Testament is the apostolic tradition. It's what the apostles taught as those authoritative witnesses to Christ, given authority by Jesus to speak God's word like the prophets of old. Not every book of the New Testament is written by an apostle, but they are all confirmed by apostles. They carry apostolic authority. And that was recognized very, very early on. And that was what led to the churches recognizing that the canon was closed very early on. The Bible led them to expect that after the time of the apostles, there was no longer any teaching at that level of authority, no one to affirm any new teaching. So God had completed his written word, and nothing more could be added. As it says at the end of Revelation, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Obviously, that's talking about Revelation, the book. But I don't think it's a coincidence that it ends up right at the end of the whole Bible. Let me just close with these two implications. We could draw many more. The first is to take a Christian approach to history. I wonder if you, you end up a little bit worried about where we've got to, or a little bit sort of dissatisfied. Um, because from a non-Christian point of view, it doesn't sound very convincing. I freely admit that's true. Saying things like Christians can recognize the Spirit's voice and God ensured we have the right books doesn't sound like the kind of thing you could say to your skeptical friend and they go, oh, great. Um, well, I want to encourage you to take a Christian approach to history. 
All too often, we can be overly concerned to make our beliefs sound plausible to a skeptical world. We can be too quick to strip out anything which we think won't come across too well, or which makes us sound biased or lack neutrality. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as neutrality. Jesus said, whoever is not with us is against us. The reality of God divides the world in two. And we do the gospel no favors by pretending that we can investigate history neutrally. In fact, we do God a disservice. And in fact, we do the whole concept of objectivity a disservice. We can't do history very well by ignoring the single most important fact of history. That's not objective. There's a personal God who's sovereign over all of it. That's an objective fact. If we're going to be objective historians. You need to recognize that. We're not going to be neutral historians. We'll be objective ones. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you look at history and ask a question, why did this happen? The only answer you give is because God did it. We still realize that God works through the process of history and we can look at those. We can do the rigorous investigation of sources. We can try to be objective and not to prejudge the conclusions. But we mustn't be neutral and pretend that God doesn't exist when we're doing history. The truth is that our friends are biased to believe that God doesn't exist. We all are before God gets hold of us. And the only thing that will change their minds is not some misguided attempt at playing by their rules and doing it as if they're on their turf, but neutral, balanced history, which is impossible anyway. It's by them encountering God in his word. It's by the gospel of the cross of Jesus changing their minds and enabling them to take a right view of history, which has that single most important fact as the key thing in it. The second implication is to take confidence in God's word. These scriptures, these 66 books, can make us wise for salvation because they are nails fixed by one shepherd. They are reliable and true. They are goads to spur us on to please God. The Bible, t- the song we're going to sing in a minute talks about um, the holy war that God is fighting in us, that he's putting sin to death. How is he doing it? How do we know what is sin? We know it from the sword of the Spirit who is fighting for us. The sword of the Spirit, the 66 books of the canon, that God has graciously and sovereignly preserved because our God is watching over his word to fulfill it. Why don't we pray by standing and singing, O great God of highest heaven. Let's sing.